I am Sarah Jane Case, and this is Enneagram and Coffee. Hello friends, happy Wednesday. I hope your day is treating you well. Today I'm answering your questions texted into the podcast phone line, but first today's rosebud and thorn. My rose today is I have gotten really into drinking hot tea. I started it as a habit that I wanted to build. I wanted to be someone who drank tea, um, particularly because drinking hot beverages is really good for your lungs and I can't drink as much coffee as I would like to. Um, But through that, it's now become a really special part of my day. I make it first thing in the morning. I usually have some after dinner and it just is so comforting and it feels like a little cozy ritual. My thorn is that I'm signing up for a new doctor today. And honestly, y'all, I have a lot of medical anxiety. Um, 2020, I was going to so many doctors getting all of these different scans, trying all of these different procedures and medications. And anyone who's ever gone through something like that, particularly if you leave that without a diagnosis and without a solution to your symptoms even, it can feel so exhausting. (laughs) I don't have a better phrase for it. It just is, it's so weird. It just makes you feel like disassociated from your body. And I really don't want to go back, but I do need to figure out what's going on with my lungs and my kidneys and all this good stuff. So I got to go back, but I really don't want to. My bud is that I meal prepped a salad for the week and it's so good. It's got like orzo and kale and white beans, peppers and feta. And I Um, packed some for lunch today and I'm really excited about it. Okay, now let's get into this week's questions. Question one, hi Sarah Jane, my question is what are the distinct differences between the self-preservation three and the self-preservation four? I strongly identify with the self-press three but also have a lot of self-press four tendencies and I know that they can often be mistyped as each other. Any clarification would be super fun to hear. Thank you for your work and your time, Haley. Hi, Haley. Yes, there are a lot of similarities between these two. For those who maybe are new here, new to the Enneagram, real quick, I'll give you a quick synopsis of what a subtype is. So each Enneagram type has three subtypes, self-preservation, social, and sexual, or one-to-one. We usually have one of those that is dominant, one that is secondary, and one that is repressed. Basically, these subtypes are our way of surviving in the world. Self-preservation types seek to self-preserve, keep themselves safe, kind of comfort themselves. They focus on, you know, their own physical safety and well-being. Social types are seeking to find their place in the social hierarchy, and sexual or one-to-one types are kind of centered toward procreation, but it's more so about, like, intense passionate, emotional connection. So that is my quick synopsis of what a subtype is. Now, self-preservation threes and self-preservation fours. So yes, there's a lot of similarities between these two. They're both in the image triad. They both seek to be seen, but also seen for how much they don't need to be seen. Also in general, we're likely to find a lot in common with the other types with our subtype, right? So self-preservation types tend to be drawn to each other, just like social and one-to-one types. There's things that you have in common from those types. Like I can read, 
you know, my subtype and almost every other type and see something in me that's similar. So in that way, it makes a lot of sense, right, that they, they easily mistype. Now, the major differences here are that self-preservation threes are focused on being successful by the definition of how they fit into the world around them, right? They use the social order that they're in to determine how successful they are. They have a complicated relationship to vanity, meaning they want to be seen as successful, but also they feel guilty about that desire. Whereas self-preservation fours have a complication, complicated relationship to suffering. They want to prove how much they can suffer without complaining. Now, at the end of the day, the self-preservation three at their core is motivated by achievement and perceived success by other people. While the self-preservation four is motivated by the desire to find and express their identity. In general, threes tend to have more self-belief and confidence and have an easier time making friends, while fours struggle to see themselves as whole and worthy and may not have a strong sense of where they belong or if they belong. All right, question two, what are some ways that cultural or ethnic background affect the Enneagram types? What are similarities and difference in types who are from different countries or regions of the world? And does age, specifically being different generations, change how types may show up? So every culture, in my opinion, has its own Enneagram type, whether that's a large culture like the country that you were raised in, or even as small a culture as your immediate family. Each of these are going to create what we call overlays. So a pressure to live up to the expectations of that culture, even if it's not your dominant Enneagram type. This is seen really clearly in the concept of the American dream. We are expected to pull ourselves up from our bootstraps and make the most of the little that we are given. Success and wealth are highly valued to the point that we accept crippling debt as success, even though it may not be truly successful. It is perceived success. This being said, those raised in the US are likely to feel these pressures whether they are dominant in type three or not. We are taught that to be a good American, we are to be type three-like. Additionally, there are factors to consider with how we approach growth based on different cultures and circumstances. Do you feel safe to grow? Is the world a safe place for you in general? Do you feel able to be vulnerable enough to let your guard down? What are the genuine obstacles to letting your guard down? I think the same can apply generationally. As we evolve, we continue to become more vulnerable kind of as a culture. What felt safe to share at my grandmother's generation versus my mom versus me versus my child is vastly different, right? So what is available in terms of growth and safety to expand is largely possible because of the generations that come before us, right? My grandma's generation opened up a door that my my mom's generation got to walk through. And then my mom's generation kind of expanded a little bit so that we had a wider door to walk through and we'll expand it a little bit so our kids have a wider door to walk through. We kind of build on each other. That being said, our fixations and our barriers to growth are going to look different based off of this, right? The freedom that we have to grow and the freedom we have to be vulnerable is vastly different generation to generation. And each generation has its kind of own culture, its own set of expectations, and probably its own Enneagram type that would serve as an overlay for each of those types. I would argue that my mom's generation, you know, she's a boomer, um, that they are a type six generation, right? They're seeking safety. They prioritize security. They were raised in a world in which buying a home was reasonable 
and expected of everyone. Whereas the millennial generation, we were brought into a situation where our safety and our security weren't necessarily guaranteed. It wasn't necessarily a guarantee that we would go to college, get a job right out of college, retire from that same job, buy a home, live in that home for the rest of our lives. Like that's not quite as common. So we, you know, I wouldn't say that we are a type six generation. I think we're kind of a generation where entrepreneurship is really prevalent. Um, so maybe a three, seven or an eight situation. So yes, it definitely impacts things for a myriad of reasons. Let's be honest, adulting is no joke. It's an onslaught of WTFs at least 20 times a day. Sometimes we just need a break from the day-to-day drab, maybe a couple of cuss words, a middle finger or two, or a few great laughs, whatever it takes to put adulting in time out. You need Smartass and Sass, the subscription box that will say everything you want to say so your mouth doesn't have to. Smartass and Sass items are curated and personally tested by the SNS team, a group of really mouthy mofos who want you to get a good laugh in your day. SNS partners with some of the best small businesses to bring you trendy and snarky items each month. I personally love spending time with a friend who is just balls out, bold and vibrant, cusses as much as they want to cuss, says whatever they want to say. There's something so relaxing and freeing to be in that friendship with that person. And I feel like this subscription box is that coming to my doorstep. I just love that feeling of irreverence. It makes me feel so free and so calm and just so much lighter and takes so much pressure off of being an adult in this world. Each big box contains one SNS designed t-shirt, has between seven to nine unique items, and is valued at $90 or more. There are other subscription sizes available, but the big box starts at $49.95. And you can use code EGRAM for 10% off your first time subscription and shop orders. Now this can't be combined with any other offer. It's a one-time use only, but Definitely give this to yourself as a fun gift this season. Follow Smart Ass and Sass on social media for your daily dose of attitude. All right, question number three. I am confused about growth via integration and disintegration. Using my type nine as an example, I've heard both three and six being referred to as my growth number. Beatrice Chestnut calls six and nine's growth through stress number but most other Enneagram sources call three the growth number because it's where we go in security. Why the discrepancy in terms? Um, And honestly, I call them the stress and rest numbers. I think it's just everyone trying to find their own way of describing a complicated concept. But at the end of the day, here is what you need to know. The number that you go to in stress can be experienced positively and negatively. You can notice that you're stressed based on the behaviors that are arising in you. You know, you start to get a little bit, you know, for me as a seven, I start to get really rigid and judgmental and that's indication that maybe I'm stressed out. You can prevent potential stress by integrating some healthy behaviors from that stress type. So I'm less likely to get stressed out if I integrate some routine and structure into my life that they can kind of pull from that type one. Or you could even stress yourself out by trying to live as that type for too long, right? If I lean away into my one and I try to structure everything in my life, which I can sometimes be tempted to do, 
it stresses me out. It is not my happy place. It is not where I thrive. It is definitely like kind of putting myself into a mode of being consistently stressed out. Now, the number that you go to in arrest, it's the same. You may notice that you are in a situation where you feel safe because you're exhibiting behaviors of your rest type. So as a seven, moving to five, I realized like, oh, I'm feeling really secure because I don't have to fill my time with lots of people anymore. I feel comfortable staying home for long periods of time without entertaining myself. These are really healthy behaviors. And like not even healthy behaviors, but just more restful behaviors, the behaviors of a calmed out me, a chilled out me. Or you can create rest for yourself by intentionally using skills from that type, right? So I can go to five intentionally and deepen my knowledge on things, learn the, the background behind the things that I'm interested in, deepen my research into one topic instead of spreading myself over lots of things. Or I can say, you know, maybe I'm stressed out because I have... 10 different income sources. Maybe I need to narrow that down a little bit. Um, think about the world like a five would. You know, how do I manage my energy levels, um, preserve my resources? But then also, it can become complacent. It can be a place that you go to kind of rest to the point of complacency. You know, if I start to block other people out to the point where I don't know who to call when I'm going through a hard time that's not a great thing for me, right? That's a sign that like I've gotten a little bit too comfortable. I haven't pushed myself to create lasting connections that sevens need to do. So that is how it can look. That's all you need to know. You can go to the, the high end or the low end. You can do that intentionally. You can do that accidentally. Um, my training, we learned you can climb up to the top or you can slide down to the bottom of either of those lines. All right, question number four. I'm kind of beating myself up myself up about merging as a nine. I've recently discovered that I'm a sexual instinct nine, I think. So I think that makes the tendency to merge in my relationships even stronger. I see this as a weakness in my personality or something to grow out of, but I never seem to be able to mature or grow enough to stop merging. I'm worried I'll never be able to have a healthy marriage while still maintaining my own independence. But clearly there are plenty of nines all over the world who have successful marriages. Is merging just a part of my personality I'll have to accept, or is there a way to grow out of it? Mm. So my sweet nine, I have been there with my type as well, feeling like I am failing if I live out of my number. Now, this caused me in some ways to even give up some of the great qualities of my type as I kind of overcorrected. I share more about this in the episode titled What to Do When Self-Help Makes You Feel Worse. So you can listen to that if you want more. But for you, my type nine, I want to say that this is something you likely will be in relationship to forever. I don't think that there is a destination where we're perfectly healed. There's no perfect marriage, no perfect person. In my opinion, anyone who tells you that they are healed is sketchy and you should not trust them. So how do we make this journey a safe one for ourselves while we grow? I honestly think it starts with meditation so that we can really get to a point of becoming an observer of our pattern. In every relationship, we create these patterns, and it's not that the temptation to fall into that pattern will one day just go away, but we can notice it faster and choose a different option sooner. So at the end of the day, like you don't have to release being a nine completely. You're probably going to be in relationship to you know, your desire to merge for the rest of your life. But what you can do is slow down the process, 
notice the pattern, and make different choices just one experience at a time. All right, friends, as a reminder, if you have Enneagram questions, you can text or call them into 828-338-9127. As always, it's an absolute joy to create this content for you, and I will see you tomorrow for the next episode.